If you would please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning as we continue into this passage and in, in this marvelous letter that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Peter to write, it comes back again and echoes for us the theme of suffering. And again, it draws our attention to our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who suffered for us. This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. But before we launch into this, I'd like to bounce back to chapter 2 and read there, beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter, and then continue right into chapter 3 and verse 13. As I skip over some of these, just in note, it's, it's not because they're unimportant. In fact, they're the little pieces of practical application of this topic in different specific scenarios. What, is we, what we find here, though, is that even with those, we have this theme that continues. So follow with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed." Ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Chapter 3, verse 13. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but quickened, made alive by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water." The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Our great Lord Jesus, you the one who sits at the right hand of God, we bow before you. We give thanks to you that you're the one who gave your life, gave yourself, so that we, the unjust, could be justified, so that we, the guilty and condemned, could be pardoned and declared righteous, clothed in your righteousness. We bow before you today considering that you are supreme, that you are the creator, that you are the God of all creation, that you are our God, our Savior, our Shepherd, the Bishop of our souls. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, may we be encouraged, may we be lifted up, may we know the truth of our salvation in you, our position in you, and may it prepare for us that no matter what we face and no matter how we may be called to suffer, we can follow the example set for us by you. Lord Jesus, we fix our eyes upon you this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Work in my heart and mind and through my words. May your saints be admonished. May we this day know you more. May we have an understanding of passages that at first glance are difficult to understand. Teach us Dear Spirit, that we may know the truth and thereby glorify you. We commit ourselves now to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Suffering is the theme of 1 Peter. Suffering. Some have referred to it as a textbook. And in it, we have set before us the perfect, the ideal example of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who suffered. And what's amazing is that he not only suffered, he suffered for you and for me. The reason why we pulled in chapter 2 is because as we start into chapter 3 and verse 18, it calls back to that. For it says, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Here the also echoes back to what we see in chapter 2 regarding his suffering. 
There we see, though, that the sins that he suffered for were not his own sins. For here we see that he hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Looking back in chapter 2 and verse 22, we read that he is one who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He suffered for the unjust. That's you, that's me. For the Scriptures declare that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all are guilty before Him. Every mouth is stopped before Him in guilt. We have nothing to plead but guilt. But to think that Christ the one who knew no sin, the one in whom was no guile, the one who had no personal sin, would suffer for us. That's a big deal. That means we're precious. That means we are special to Him. It's amazing here as it declares once suffered. That, too, is a big deal. It's an inference of Jesus Christ and his deity and being one who is infinite. To a Jew reading this, this was even a greater deal. We are so disconnected from the Jewish society and the law of Moses and the practice of sacrifices. Those sacrifices, blood sacrifices, made as a covering, as an atonement for sin. We are so disconnected from it. But yet, if we were to consider it and the day-by-day -day sacrifices that were made to cover sin, we would stand in even greater awe of the fact here that the one, the Christ, suffered, and he suffered once for sins. It doesn't belittle it. It actually shows how great it is, how great it was, his sacrifice, that he paid the penalty for my sin. Do you see how if I am one who is called upon to suffer, as is referred to in chapter 3 and verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing? And how if I find myself in that place, the example set forth by Christ, the one who always did well-doing, the one who was always righteous now can be one who is a motivation for me as I look to him in enduring whatever suffering comes. But not only is he this example that is set for me, this one who, who has done what was required so that me being unjust could be justified, all throughout the book of Romans, it speaks of us being those who are guilty, but yet Christ declaring us not guilty, not because of our own righteousnesses, but because Christ took our unrighteousness upon himself and then clothed us with his righteousness. If you were to look over on the other page here in chapter 2 again, the parallel of this Verse 24, who 
his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, the cross, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. And look here at the last phrase, by whose stripes ye were healed. We, the unjust, we, the sick and dead, are healed because of what he did in his suffering and in his death. Why did he do this? And how might that be an encouragement to us as we suffer? It says here that he might bring us to God. Take a moment. Meditate upon what is stated there. That he, Christ, might bring us to God. God, the creator of heaven and earth. God, the I am. We brought to him? <laughs> That's a big deal. It's not possible in our sinful state for his righteous judgment cannot tolerate sin. His righteousness would break forth and consume us as unjust. But when we are made just because of and through the sufferings, the death of Jesus Christ, we can come before God. Jesus Christ brings us to God. Picture this in the picture or the idea of the heavenly throne room. God in all of his glory, we we tried to learn of it several weeks ago, and we studied Isaiah chapter 6. The Lord high and lifted up in all of his glory, and, the, and the, the seraphim around crying out, holy, holy, holy. Imagine that scene. And the Lord Jesus takes you by the arm and says, yeah, come with me. And you walk boldly into that throne room, and Jesus announces you to the king of glory. I mean, we can see it on a human level of great and powerful people and a privilege of receiving their favor for them to shine their face upon us. It's minuscule compared to the glorious reality described here that Christ, the one who suffered for us, did it so that he could present us. He could bring us to God. It was a heavy cost, but oh, the glory of it to our own lives. We see here this bringing us to God is, is really a description. I mean, we, we just kind of, in some ways, can gloss over it, but if, if we take the time to meditate and to imagine what is really being described there, it, it, is, it is a declaration. It is a, it is a triumph. It is a glory. 
sinful man in the presence of God, righteous before him. It, 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 it is something that going way, way, way back to the Garden of Eden was corrupted when once man did walk in the cool of the day with God, his creator. But sin broke that. Sin severed that relationship. And it's now Christ who is restoring it. It's a triumph that's being described here. And not just here is a triumph being described. In fact, as we continue down into the next sections, we see greater, or I shouldn't say greater, we see other triumphs being declared. Look here, for it tells us that he was put to death in the flesh. This is a crystal clear statement in the inspired word of God that Jesus died he didn't fall into some coma to awaken three days later. No, in his flesh, he died. He died. Now, you all know this, but for a moment, forget that he rose from the dead. You say, oh, I could never do that. That would be like heresy. Well, yeah, I could, it would be. But, but for a moment, humor me and forget that he rose from the dead. And tell me, how are you going to be presented to the God of creation and be brought before him if the one who's going to bring you is dead? Well, it wouldn't work. And so by inference, he's alive to be able to make that accomplish. And it continues on. It says that he was quickened by the Spirit. This quickened doesn't mean that he did it really fast. This quickened means that he was made alive. It's an old word that means made alive. And it was by the Spirit. Jesus Christ not only brings us to God, declaring us, as righteous, justified. But he also, it's described here in the next verse, preached a message of triumph and glory to a group referred to as the spirits in prison. Verse 19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. The word here preached is not the same word as we also find in the New Testament of evangelizing. So the word evangelize means to proclaim or to declare the good news and is generally associated with the invitation to receive the good news and thereby the salvation of Christ. It's a different word here used in the Greek that hints partly why it's translated as preached. It wasn't a preaching that was to evangelize. It was a preaching to proclaim and to declare the victory and the triumph that had been prophesied way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. So who is these people, quote-unquote, may I say? Let me change that. The spirits. Who are these spirits to whom Christ preached. We see a little hint here into what Jesus Christ was doing while he was in the grave. And you might say, well, wait, what? 
Yeah, he was in the grave, but his spirit was very much alive. And his spirit went to a prison and preached unto the spirits there in that prison. These are fallen, evil angels. How do we know that? Well, let's look at verse 20, for it speaks of these spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient. When? When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing. Here we have a record of a group of spirits, angels, who were disobedient long time past in history, and specifically in the 120 years of preparing Noah's ark. Well, what happened in that time that would cause this? Well, Peter not only speaks of this and refers to this here in his first letter, he brings the topic up again in his second letter. For if we go over to 2 Peter chapter 2, we find some very stern warnings given regarding false prophets, false teachers who bring in damnable heresies. And a warning is given, and in the warning given, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, an illustration of God's judgment and righteousness is given. For, it says, if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And here again it ties it back to the days of Noah. For it says, And spare not the old world, but save Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, in contrast to the false preachers, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Bringing another warning and illustration from history and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. And he continues on. But he cites here this illustration of sparing not the angels that sinned and speaks of them here being cast down to hell and delivered into the chains of darkness to be reserved a prison, in a prison, unto judgment. Here we have another detail regarding angels who were disobedient, who sinned, being confined. Peter's not the only one to talk about this. For if we turn just a few more pages further to the book of Jude, we find there a reference again to angels. And here, so we saw in 1 Peter that these were um, those who were disobedient. And in 2 Peter, we see them who sinned. And now here in Jude, we read of angels in verse 6, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness 
unto the judgment of the great day. Again, speaking of angels who are confined awaiting judgment. And here it's described not only as those who have now we've seen been disobedient, those who have sinned, but here those who left their first estate, left their own habitation. So what is this talking about? Well, there's one other New Testament reference I'd like to bring your attention to, and that is in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, where we meet a legion of demons, fallen angels. In Luke chapter 8, there is a man who is found who is possessed by demons, evil angels. And this man meets the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has come across the Sea of Galilee, and he goes forth and he meets this man. In chapter 8, verse 27, it says that had devils long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. It's interesting. These demons know exactly who Jesus is. And do you see their petition? Torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oft times it caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. We see here a man who is possessed by demons, devils, and it is said, he, he, this man has received amazing strength through these devils. And Jesus is, is come and is freeing this man from these devils. And, and they say, torment us not. And Jesus asked him, asked him, verse 30, saying, what is thy name? And he said, legion, for many devils were entered into him. Legion was a, a term used by the Romans to describe a particular number of soldiers or troops um, that would range anywhere from 600 to a few thousand, depending on what the need was. And so there's a, there's a lot of demons possessing this man. And then we have an interesting little phrase here where it says, and they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Literally, the abyss. That's the Greek word. The abyss, the bottomless pit, which is the same reference used over by Peter. Well, what's going on here? Well, we find a group of demons who have left their first estate, who have left their habitation, and have taken up their habitation in a man. And Jesus says, out. And they're terrified because there's been other demons who have done the same thing, 
and they have been confined in the abyss. And so they petition Jesus, these demons, petition Jesus to say, send us not to the prison. Send us not to the abyss. Boy, if I were Jesus, I don't know. I think I would have said, not a chance, guys. You are so going to the abyss. Uh, but he didn't. For these demons knew that there was a herd of swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them, and, and he suffered them. In verse 33, then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. And they that fed them saw what was done. They fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. They were terrified. So here now we have another group of angels who have left their first estate. They've come to a new habitation in a man. They're sinning. They're disobedient. Do you see the things they did to this man? And they're fearful that they too will, as previous angels were, sent to the abyss, sent to the deep. So, putting these together, who are these spirits that Jesus preached to? Well, it tells us in Peter that they were during the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. And so, if we turn back to Genesis chapter 6, we there find the record of Noah, and we find a very interesting scenario taking place in the early verses of this chapter. Death has reigned on the earth. Finally, Noah is born. Noah means peace, but the earth was nothing but peace at that time. For it tells us that it came to pass Notice it doesn't say once upon a time in fairy tale land. No, it came to pass in true history. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, that's an interesting phrase. We don't have time this morning to go into it, but we do find it used in other parts of the scriptures, literally translated the mighty ones. In Job, very specifically, it's clear that these are angels without a distinction of them being holy, righteous, or evil. Here, as we see it, it's inferred evil. The sons of God, evil angels, saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man upon the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man 
whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the account continues on to tell of Noah building an ark, whereby he and all those who went with him into the ark, all those who were immersed into that ark, were saved. Here we see yet more details, and when combining all of these details together, we find these angels, evil angels, who left their first estate, their first habitation, who sinned and were disobedient in their involvement with mankind. What exactly was this? It is at least a demonic possession of men. Some have thought it to be even more than that. I think there's some problems to go further to speak of incarnate angels. I think there's some very theological troubles there. But it means at least that these demons are meddling and possessing men in this time and bringing about and manipulating things. It's inferred here that there's a manipulation of the gene pool in bringing about giants in the land. It's a really evil situation going on here, and it is so severe of disobedience and of these demons, fallen evil angels, leaving their first estate that God judges them by casting them into the abyss, which is what? the demons knew about in Luke with Jesus and what Peter talks about in his first epistle as the prison and in his second epistle and what also Jude refers to as Tartarus, the Greek word there. All of this pulls together is the situation. Now let's go back to our text in 1 Peter chapter 3 for it tells us that Christ went and preached unto the spirits in prison. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the audio recording of that, maybe the video recording of that. I wonder what that was like. I mean, the bottomless pit, the abyss, where these demons have been bound for thousands of years, and they've known all along that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's the one who created them. But yet there, back in the early days of this world, when their master, their one they chose to follow, Lucifer, rose up in pride, he himself wanted to be like the Most High. They followed him, were cast from heaven. They've meddled in these situations. They've been confined. They've been reserved for a day of judgment, which, by the way, did you know that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels? It wasn't intended originally for us. And they are there awaiting this ultimate end. All the while, they know that there was a prophecy made in that Garden of Eden the very day when the father of lies, Lucifer, that devil, deceived the woman. And Adam and Eve sinned that day. God told that serpent that he would put enmity between him, that serpent, the devil, him and the woman. 
and he spoke of a seed of that woman that would bruise his head. And by the way, it's not just a minor little bruise he's going to get over. It's a crushing victory. And here throughout the, the, the thousands of years that had passed since then, approximately four to 5,000 years, and at least for probably about uh, three to 4,000 years, these angels have been confined. And I don't know what news made it to them in that bottomless pit, the abyss. Maybe they heard of the events going on in Jerusalem. Maybe they heard of the events of the Son of God, the Jesus, the Savior, coming to the, the earth. Maybe they heard that he'd been crucified. <laughs> and he's in a grave. And imagine when they hear the news that he's in the grave, they might have been tempted maybe. I'm imagining here, give me, give me some liberty, please, of a celebration. We did it! And here he shows up at prison, their creator, the one who they've been warring against for millennia, one who will be their ultimate demise. And he shows up there in that prison, and he preaches to them. He declares to them, Victories won. I don't know whether this was the first day, the second day, or the third day of his burial, but whatever it was, it was within moments that his bruised heel was going to be minuscule in light of what was accomplished in his death. See what has just been accomplished in his death? See what has been accomplished in his death is the justifying of the unjust. What's been accomplished here is bringing unrighteous, sinful men, declaring them righteous, clothing them in righteousness to bring them to God. That's not a good thing for them, or that they think. And here he declares this to them. And as, as Peter is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit recounting this event, giving us a glimpse into what was going on in those three days, he starts thinking about that ark that was a preparing that Noah had made. And he goes, oh, this is a great time for an object lesson. For that ark, he says, is a like figure. That ark is a picture of something. It's a picture of salvation. Eight souls were saved. And then he says, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now, before you run away with what that might be, or you might think it means. It doesn't mean that you go down into the waters of this baptismal or any waters anywhere and get baptized and that's how you're saved. It's not the meaning of it. There's lots of other scriptures we have in the past and can go into teaching that that is not how one is saved actually. The word baptism literally means to put into. Here what's being described here is, is that there was this water overwhelming and judgment but there was an ark that was put into that water and there were people that were put into that ark and they were saved by that. 
And so here now, he says, the like figure we're into even being put into will also now save us. Notice the parenthetical phrase. Skip to the end of the parenthetical phrase. We'll come back to it. But see here, the like figure wherein to even baptism being put into doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, what's being described here is that you are saved by being put into Christ, the one who is life, the one who died in the flesh but also rose again. And it is in him that you and me, we have life. When we are put into him, when we are baptized into Christ, this is vividly illustrated and declared in Romans chapter 6 where it says, Therefore, we are buried with him that is Christ by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The baptism here that's being described is the baptism more detailed described in Romans chapter 6. The baptism into Christ, into his life, into his resurrection. Here it is, even going, coming back now to this parenthetical phrase, it clarifies indeed he's not talking about getting dunked and getting a bath in, in the baptism being put into water, for he says clearly not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, no, no, this is, this is something that is deeper, greater, more significant. It is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's a beautiful figurative description, not really figurative, it's a literal description of what faith is, what trust is. It is the recognizing of our sinfulness, us being unjust, but of that he is the one who died for us. And that in our sin, our consciences, guilty, can only be purified by him. He's the one who purifies our conscience when we are baptized into him. Hereby the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see what's being described here? The declaration of what Jesus has done when he suffered. The declaration of what he did in declaring his victory and triumph while yet still in the grave to the spirits in prison, to us being put into, baptized, immersed into him, into his death, into his resurrection. And now look at where all of this goes. And again now for a moment, take with me and step back into the concept and idea that you and I were facing persecution. We are suffering for well-doing. Answering that question in verse 13, who is he that will harm you? Who will harm you? Well, considering this Christ, who once suffered for the sins, the one who, dead in the flesh, went and preached unto the spirits in prison, the one who was resurrected, who, verse 22, 
is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. The position of power and authority, of privilege, the right hand of God. Remember, this is the same one who's going to bring us to God. Oh, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, Ephesians tells us that we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. You know what that means? That means that when we're in the darkest despair, when we think we're in the abyss, when we look to what's being described here, we see that we have actually been justified and we can come before God. And in fact, being baptized, put into Christ, we are actually sitting with him at the right hand of the throne of God. And when we have that perspective, no matter how dark our valley, how deep our abyss, oh, I don't even know the words to describe it. The glory of it. We may think of those who seek to cause us harm. We may consider the demonic powers around us, the demons who are orchestrating events around us, or even possessing those around us to torment us. The government, who may not be doing what they're described to do back in chapter 2 of rewarding righteousness, but rather persecuting righteous. Christ is the one who has gone into heaven, is on the right hand of the throne of God, and we with him, angels and authorities and powers, being made subject unto him. It's one. The victory's one. What was prophesied way back there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that enmity between the devil and the woman, and the woman identifying as a, really all of us. Yes, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, his heel was bruised. But Satan and all of his demonic power, victory has been won. There's no question about it. And it's even been declared to those who are in prison. Now, one more note here before we wrap up. Turn your page to chapter 5 of First Peter. Here, we are said to be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. And then in verse 6, it continues, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 
whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. And you may say, wait a minute, why don't we just throw him in the bottomless pit too in the abyss and be done with this? Why is he wandering around as a warning? Well, he is. Yes, indeed, we've got these spirits that are in prison, but they're not all in prison. Be sober, be vigilant, know that you have an adversary. Know he desires to sift you. Know he desires to devour you. Beware. But at the same time, you're aware and you're sober and you're vigilant. Don't forget that he is subject to Christ who sits on the right hand of the throne of God. He is still subject. We see that beautifully illustrated and proven in a real live example with the Job in the Old Testament. But in it all, submit to God. Peter, as well as Jude, have lots to say about angels. In fact, actually, if we were to bounce over to Jude again for a moment, we find out that um, there is some trouble with demons um, described here. But it's interesting how Jude tells us of how Michael, a holy, righteous angel, deals with demons, which ought to give us alert and alarm. They set us a model. In Jude, verse 9, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, Michael, a righteous angel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, some event that took place in the past, here recorded for us, otherwise we wouldn't know about it. Here there's this, there's this fight between Michael the archangel and the devil over the body of Moses. But Michael durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Peter, we have that roaring lion. The way that we win in these fights, in these difficulties, and no matter what demonic assaults may face us, the victory is found by being sober and being vigilant, being humble, recognizing that it is the Lord and Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the throne of God to whom the devil is subject. Just so you know, we are very weak beings compared to angels. We have no business trying to war them in our own ways. What does it say? The Lord rebuke thee. In our lives, while we really, you may not be able to discern whether or not you're dealing with, with a flesh and blood issue, which we know that most of the time is not flesh and blood, but it's beyond that. And then that situation, you try to fight that in your own strength and you're going to struggle, you're going to fail. It is about submitting and humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, recognizing that your identity is in him, he seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and all principalities, powers, including demons, and all angels, subject unto him. Submit to him. But look at it all. There's victory described in these verses. The privilege and the honor of being in the very presence of God through Christ Jesus. This morning, let's rejoice in it. Let's rejoice in this. Let us give thanks for it. Perhaps this morning, you've not been baptized into Christ. You're not a part of him. You've not been put into him to be saved. 
It's only by believing and trusting in Him that you can be put into Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Trust Him. Know Him. And you can be brought without fear to God. Jesus, the creator of all things, bringing you into the very throne room of heaven and declaring, here, this one's with me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe today. And for all of us, let us be humble, but let us walk in heavenly places and from a heavenly perspective of life, rejoicing in our good great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you are great. You are lifted up. You are good. We are so privileged to be in you, to be justified, to be brought by you, our mediator, to God. Oh, Lord Jesus, may we as your, as, as your sheep abide and dwell and live in that reality day by day, moment by moment. In the moments of temptation, in the moments of even failure, in the moments of happiness and joy and victory, may we live in you abiding in you and you abiding in us. May we live in this reality. May we reckon ourselves indeed dead unto sin, but alive unto you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have won the victory. As we consider you declaring that victory to the spirits in prison, we rejoice that you have declared that victory in our own individual lives. And Lord Jesus, may that victory be realized in all of our lives. I pray specifically, Lord, for those who this morning here in this very room have not believed on you. May your spirit work and move in their hearts, convicting them. May your word have its effectual power that you have said it has. And may each one here, just as Noah and his family went into that ark, by faith be immersed into you, into your death, into your resurrection, and into your life. And may we walk in that newness of life for your glory, for your honor, humbly. We love you now and commit ourselves to you as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.